Hi, my name is Jeff Flaming, and you're listening to the TV Writer Podcast. So I want to tell you a little bit about our main sponsor for the episode. Script Anatomy is a screenwriting school that gets incredible results. In just four years, their students have won 58 fellowships, half of them at major studios. In 2020 alone, Script Anatomy won four out of 11 fellowships at CBS and three out of eight at Warner Brothers. Why? Because the instructors are all working writers with current credits. They teach a consistent tool-based program and they treat students like emerging professionals. To get your writing career started, go to scriptanatomy.com. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 118 for November 1st, 2021. Well, today I have the pleasure of bringing you an interview with veteran writer, executive producer, and instructor, Jeff Flaming. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great. Thanks, Gray. And you, you have a really impressive list of credits, which we will get to later on the podcast. But I think that your journey through the industry is going to be of particular interest to the viewers of this show. And I want to go right back to the beginning, because I think there's a lot of people who are not in Hollywood. And they, they write to the podcast, you hear them at panels. And there's all these questions about, can I start outside of Hollywood and be a successful TV writer? At what point do I move uh, and all of those those things. So tell me sort of where it all began. Well, I, I'm originally from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, <clears throat> I, interestingly enough, when I was a kid, I drew all the time. I thought I was going to be a cartoonist hmm. or an animator. I'd done a bunch of films in high school, like uh, Super 8 films, long mm -hmm. before video. And so we would script things like that. But it was mostly like, what's the coolest shot we can get? What? How do we get the killer upstairs before the other person finds out? I mean, it's all terrible Super 8 stuff. But uh, yeah. so I went to college, actually went into theater at the University of Minnesota. And uh, my acting 101 class was uh, taught by this Chicago actor. And his name was William H. Macy. Oh, wow. And so the class had a book that was, you know, uh, scenes for two actors, a man and a woman, hmm. scenes for two men, scenes for two women. All that stuff. And throughout the whole year, we would do exercises from that. We performed scenes for that for the class. Mm -hmm. And then it was finally the um, finally the last uh, 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 thing for the class nearing the end. And um, I uh, performed my scene with my partner and Bill May Bill Macy, you and by Bill, uh, mm -hmm. said, well, that was very good after we had finished. That was very good. Uh, I, um, I'm not familiar with that scene, though. And I said, well, it's because it's not from the book. It's because I wrote it. Because I thought, I'm just going to write a scene, you know, rather than yeah. going through all these things. And he's like, oh, oh, interesting. Well, you know, he gave me some pointers and we refined it and everything. And it was like, good for me, you know. And yeah. uh, it wasn't until the end of the semester when we had the teacher conference thing. with, uh, you know, And I'm sitting in a room with Bill. And he goes, have you ever considered writing a whole play? And I had not. I mean, mm. I'd written these, like I said, these little sort of, you know, pencil outlines for Super 8 films, but never had I written anything, you know, beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm like, uh, well, no, I, 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 and he said, you know, I strongly urge you to do that, which I took to mean either I had done really well as a writer and he saw promise, or I was such a bad actor that, uh, <laughs> that uh, he uh, thought, mm, let's throw this guy a bone or whatever. Yeah. It was about the time that uh, Sid Field came out with his first book, hmm. uh, 
uh, I can't even remember the name of it now, uh, it, but it was sort of the seminal first book every scriptwriter would read. And I read it yeah. and I'm like, wow, and he's talking about paradigms, which I don't think I pronounced even correctly, but mm -hmm. it sort of put it all into some sort of a structural format that I'm like, I could do this. And so I took one of my Super 8 scripts, which is not to say any script at all, but mm -hmm. I, I turned it into a feature. And it was like so much fun because mm. you got to paint pictures and you got to tell a story. And I loved movies. I mean, I was crazy about movies. I just was going to be an animator, an actor or mm. whatever. And so that's when I really thought I'll be a screenwriter, you know. But then mm. my mom, my mom weighed in and said, well, but you probably want a job that's going to bring in some cash. And she suggested advertising. Mm. And I'm like, well, that's good. And there is a school of advertising at the university. And. And so I enrolled in that, and uh, and so I just kept writing while I was in, uh, getting, taking classes in the journalism school. And I thought, okay, fine, I don't need to graduate from the University of Minnesota. And ended up going for one year to USC, trying to get in the film school there. I met, met people in the, in the pre-film uh, school curriculum. Uh, I took a couple of prereq classes, never in the film school. It was cheaper then. But still, it was, it was not affordable for me to stay. Returned to Minnesota and finished with a degree at the University of Minnesota in communications, which happened to have an emphasis in television production. Never once did I stop writing uh, stuff at home, you know, because I always had mm -hmm. certain ideas and stuff. And this is an important lesson because, you know, I, I kept my eye on the ball I, that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be a director, per se. I didn't want to be. You know, I wanted to write. And about that time, I met my wife, uh, my, the woman that was going to be my wife. And, uh, and at that time, I think I had graduated, or was about to graduate. And uh, she, uh, she was, I was doing stand-up comedy. I was doing my writing. I was in a mm -hmm. band. I was like, all these things. And she said, have you ever thought about focusing on one thing? Uh. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> and she worked as an occupational therapist. And I worked in advertising as an art director. We had no kids. We ended up buying a house. And uh, and I, we would, like, have our dinner, and we'd watch TV, and we'd hang out. And then she would, she'd go to sleep, and I would write my scripts every night. Mm. And, it, it, and I just kept going. And we that happened for about six years. I, wow. I compiled about ten screenplays the whole time trying to sell them for Minneapolis. A writer for then popular moonlighting tv series mm. was giving a seminar at uh and it was 15 dollars. i'm like i can afford 15 dollars <laughs> in an afternoon and i yeah. went i sp saw this guy and he pretty much said you know write what you know write what you love he was very inspiring and he happened to mention he was he was writing he was a, a like a high up executive on an italian production that was going to shoot in the united states starring an actor named Terrence Hill, who was mm -hmm. the star of early 70s uh, spaghetti western comedies. And it's called Lucky Luke, based on a comic book. And like, it sounds like the perfect thing for me. I loved yeah. Terrence Hill. I loved comedies, because I, I was all about comedy back then. And comic books, and I, this is great. So I contacted him, he goes, well, write some pitches. And so I wrote some pitches. They liked one. They, they had me write a spec. They loved it. They bought it. I made in the sale of that one script a nominal fee, but it was as much mm -hmm. as I made it at the advertising agency that year. Wow. And I'm like, wow, this is great. 
I don't have to move to Los Angeles. I can be in Minneapolis. They'd let me into the Writers Guild. I'm like, well, that's certainly got to count for something. That'll open doors in Hollywood. I knew nothing. And so mm-hmm. I continued working day jobs in advertising. Doors did not open miraculously from Minneapolis, mm-hmm. even though I had a Lucky Luke script, doing okay, but I was not happy. And my mm-hmm. wife then suggested we move to LA, but I didn't know anybody when we mm-hmm. arrived here. I had no agent. The, uh, the one rule we had was I was not gonna get a job. I was gonna write spec scripts mm-hmm. all day long we're going to do this for one year. Hmm. And if we don't succeed, we're going back to Minnesota. And I'm like, oh, come on. You got to be realistic. <laughs> a year. No one succeeds wow. in a year. Yeah. And she said, well, I said, give us two years, which is equally realistic, but uh-huh. twice as long as one year, you know, and because hmm. I, I, I really, really wanted to succeed. But what made it possible is that she went off every day. She'd leave in the morning at 7 a.m., I would sit at the computer, taking half an hour off at lunch to watch a Gilligan's Island rerun, and then back to it. And the rule was when she came home at five, I was done writing, which was fine because mm. I'd been writing all day long. And I wrote a Roseanne, I wrote a, there was a show called Doctor Doctor, all sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, and I in the meantime I got an agent because of my features. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, um, so you were shopping your features around? This is actually a very good point you bring up, Gray, because this is how I still suggest people do this. It's all oh, so much harder. You go in and you break every rule possible to try to get to where you need to be. At that time, getting an agent was your foot in the door, you know, because mm-hmm. they had the connections. You couldn't call, call, you know, shows and whatever. You were not supposed to because, you know, there's there's rules for that. And mm-hmm. there are also rules for the Writers Guild. They had a list of available agents saying these these agents accept unsolicited material. These mm. do not because they have to come through an attorney. And there are all these rules that I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm like, I got a two-year limit here. I can't mm. follow rules. And I would just <laughs> cold mail every agent on this list that the writers go. Wow. And then I would follow up with a telephone call. I was Jeff Flaming. I sent a letter last week. And, you know, most of them were like, oh, no thanks, ding. No unsolicited material, ding, you know. And then finally got this one guy who said, you know, I'll send me your scripts. And I sent him a couple scripts and he goes, these are really good, good writing. And, and, and so he hired me with uh, my features. And I said, well, mm-hmm. I'm also delving into television. He's like, well, I'm only features, but you know, good for you. About that time, Northern Exposure had come back on the air for like a, a mid-season, half-season. Hmm. And that show really spoke to me, uh, partially because it was very funny but also it took place in Alaska and I'm, um, you know, Minnesota. Eh, arguably, it's pretty close <laughs> to Alaska. I'm like, I wonder if I could write a, a spec for them. But every book I read uh, said, I don't, don't, don't write a spec yeah. for a show you want to work on. And again, I'm like, well, I got some good ideas. And there's nothing to lose. And so I wrote a spec, Northern Exposure, for Northern Exposure. And wow. uh, in the meantime, one of the books I had, and I can't really tell you which one, mm-hmm. but I will tell you that they were completely wrong. Is yeah. they said, watch the credits of a TV series you are interested in, and the person that's listed as story editor is the person that takes submissions. Oh, you're kidding! And this, no, it was completely wrong. I mean, it's not yeah. anywhere close to truth. 
How could they even write that? Oh, I know. I know. It's just like, it was almost like someone was making it up. You know, it was yeah. like, ah, oh, you know, story editor. That sounds like someone who would take phone calls. And anyway, but I did it. I followed the rule. I followed that guy's rule. And um, the uh, story editor at that time was a guy named Henry Brumel, who mm. actually went on to, I mean, do some fantastic, amazing work. So ring, ring, Northern Exposure <laughs> Offices. And uh, I said, yeah, can I speak with Henry Brumel? And uh, it's just a minute. I'm like, oh, this is great. Hello, this is Henry. <laughs> Henry, you don't know me, but, and I explained my whole thing about how I'm writing a spec script. I'm not supposed to do that for, because no, you're really not, because they have this whole lawyer thing and they're worrying about you being sued. And I'm like, no, understandably. And I said, but I just I think this is really, I'll tell you what he said. Just send it to my attention at the offices here and I'll see if I can get it under the wire. And wow. I'm like, oh, great, that's so fantastic. And uh, put an envelope, mailed it off. And about six months later. Six months? Six months wow. later. Wow. I get a phone call from Andy Schneider and Diane Frolov, who were the showrunners yeah. of, uh, of uh, Northern Exposure. Yeah. Anyway, they said, uh, we read your spec, and we really can't use the ideas that are in it, but it's really well written, and you really have an ear for the show. And so if you could, like, pitch us some ideas, you know, in just a few weeks, you know, uh, we'd love to hear them. Wow. I called my agent. I said, guess what? And he's like, oh, that's 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 interesting. I'm like, so we can know the guy's not interested. <laughs> and, and then he said, all right, well, I said, well, I thought it was something. And he hung up. And then he called me back like 10 minutes later. He goes, I'm sorry. Evidently, that's a huge thing. They called you. And, uh -huh. and so then he was excited. And, and they, they have a TV division at the agency. And so now they were on it. And I sat down. I thought, i got to come up with some ideas. And so it was the hardest I ever worked in coming up with ideas. I came up, stream of consciousness, 100 ideas. Oh, my goodness. And I printed them all out. And I read them to my wife out loud. And so she would go, oh, that's good. Oh, that's very good. Oh, that's stupid. That's really <laughs> stupid. So it's like R S S good. And I, I, I worked it down to nine ideas because each episode had three plot lines. So it's mm -hmm. like, here are three sample episodes. And, uh, and they'd liked, which is kind of funny. They liked one idea from this episode, one idea for, and they said, look, do us, do this as a as a potential episode mm -hmm. and, I, and and uh but it was essentially a work for hire and i'm yep. like okay and i did and they they said this is fantastic we could have you do another one or we could bring you on staff and this was about <laughs> uh this was about because you about the same amount of money yeah and uh this happened about a year after we arrived in los angeles which wow. uh, it's all Thanks to my wife and allowing me to work full time every day, pursuing wow. relentlessly all of this stuff. Uh, and uh, she continued working as an occupational therapist. We still didn't have kids. And uh, in case the bottom fell out from that point, hmm. that was my first job. And I was working with such luminaries as Andy and Diane, who went on to you know, do great stuff working on The Sopranos and many other shows. Um, Jeff hmm. Melvoin, who's been oh, a yeah. you know, Fantastic showrunner, and it was, but and um, and who else was on there? Oh, oh, Robin Green and Mitch Burgess, all of it. They went on and created um, 
again, many things I, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting, but your Blue Bloods is all currently on the air. Mm-hmm. And it was it was like going from high school to graduate school. These guys were so amazingly, uh, they're hugely funny, enormously, enormously well read. And it was just, I was, I mean, I couldn't have gotten a better first job mm-hmm. if I wanted to. It was just remarkable. It was not a sitcom. And I found that I really worked well with hour long, uh, uh, I think largely because I had begun doing features, and that was, you know, mm-hmm. well, not television is, you know, much more long form and not 27 minutes of jokes and joke trees and whatever. And so I had employment mm-hmm. within you know, a very, very, very short time, and I hadn't didn't have to work as a barista, and I didn't have to, you know, sit there and wait tables. And, and then, like every other individual is forced to, because they have to, because that's usually the case, right, right at night when you're dog-tired and, you know, mm. and you're itching for money. So that was, that was our amazing first year in Los Angeles. Well, Ed, I mean, at the, same time, at the same time, it was kind of the overnight success that took 10 years. Right. Um, that's a very good point. Because you, you arrived in L.A., but, I mean... The fact that you had 10 features written, that you, it sounds like you had close to 10, or at least during that time, right. um, TV spec scripts. I think there's there's a lot of people who are like working so hard on that one screenplay, and they don't move on and write new material all the time. When right. you went in, it's, I remember um, hearing an interview with Stephen Cannell, where he he went into pitch situations with 15 or 20 fully fleshed out pitches mm-hmm. um it it sounds like um you have that same kind of work ethic that that you really push yourself not just to one two three five ideas but you just keep on keep on keep on generating ideas and, yeah uh, and i think that's that's really um i heard actually i read i read a book um the executive chair by uh, kelly edwards recently mm-hmm. and um her her thing is is just if you work hard like that, eventually, you are going to make it, because you can't possibly be generating that much writing and not not find a place somewhere who who's going to hire you. You know that she makes a very good point, and and you bring up a good point. You write a script, you finish it, you send it out to wherever you're sending it out. You're already working on the next one, and mm. the person that is going. Okay, I've done that. All right, let's see what happens now. You know, it's like you can't do that because if you want to succeed in something, you don't slow down. You keep pursuing it, and if you hit a hurdle or multiple hurdles, you just keep going. And if you don't mm. have the wherewithal to keep going in that direction, maybe that's not for you. But all the people I've worked with in, in uh, the business, they are past that point because they re- they they realize that. And so it's a good way to sort of, you know, cut, you know, the wheat from the chaff, as they say, in the Midwest. Mm. Yeah. Another farming analogy I I love is that the more seeds you plant, the more chance that you're going to get fruit. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. So my my one year there on staff, I think I wrote three scripts. And then there was a. Yeah, it was it was really great. And then there were three. um, And then I, I rewrote a freelance one that was great. Uh, it turned out really well, but you know they, they they said we'd like you to do a pass on this, and so they really well, and which is to, which was smart. They used their staff writers really very effectively, 
-hmm. What I did not realize is that at that time, uh, the previous season, the initial season of Early Exposure, David Chase had been on the show and Barbara Hall had been on the show. Both of them had gone off to do their own, own respective series. They both came back to the Northern Exposure fold mm -hmm. and there was no room for me. <laughs> which I, you know, for the last man hired last man, a first guy to go, which yeah. is fine. And uh, I'd had nothing but a fantastic experience. But I'm like, suddenly I was out of work, and I'm going, hmm. what? I thought, <laughs> and and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I'm like, wait a minute. So don't don't get too confident. Don't start spending that money, you know, yeah. because it may not be lasting. Yeah. And so this segue to my next job. Um, uh, on uh, Weird Science, which was the first USA live-action sitcom, USA yep. Network. And the guys that ran the show, were it was their first job running a show, but I met them at a Writers Guild craft conference, which was open to anybody and everybody in the Writers Guild. So mm -hmm. membership did have its advantages. Uh -huh. uh, and I met these guys, and, and they, hadn't, they hadn't started the series yet. But when they did, they called them up and said, hey, you want to work on this show? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like fun. And uh, and so I, I ended up writing like 13 episodes over a couple of years on Weird Science. And it was great fun. And we were sort of breaking boundaries. Because USA was sort of nascent uh, 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 network. They sort mm -hmm. of let us get away with crazy stuff. We shot at the Universal lot. So I got to work on a lot. And, and so that was that was a great experience. And, and was and, Alan uh, Cross there at that time? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. I shouldn't mention mm -hmm. him by name. Yeah, Alan Cross and his then writing partner, uh, Mark, uh, uh, Tom Speziali. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, again, they'd worked on a few, couple different shows. And uh, very funny guys and, and great writers and great showrunners. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, they really had carte blanche. They, they would do whatever they wanted with storylines and stuff. So we really got to be adventuresome. And if I may say so, the series is much better than the movie. I know it's John Hughes, <laughs> much, you know, revered, and he yeah. did some great stuff. Weird Science, the feature film, was not one of the greats, uh, and not mm -hmm. like this show. The show was really good. But X-Files was on the air, and they're going, I really dig this show. It sort mm -hmm. of speaks to me. It was in the second season. No one was watching it, really, but that was, you know, Fox was this brand-new and a net network netlet whatever they called it you know it, it was like married with children and x-files and and i don't think simpsons had even started yet you know mm -hmm. so they were happy to hang on to x-files even if it wasn't getting ratings it had a fan base and i was part of that fan base and so i thought you know i wonder if i'm not going to write a spec script for that because i was busy at, at word science but I wonder if I can sort of you know, get the ear of, of Chris Carter, who had created the show. So I'm like, what do I have that's different? How can I present myself in a different way? And so I called, um, I spoke to his assistant, and I talked to her, and sort of got, it sort of struck up a relationship. And this is an important lesson I learned mm -hmm. early on, is that you, I mean, you're nice to, to the person who would you like a, a water before your meeting. I mean, just be nice to everyone because eventually the person who got you water may be running a show. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. you know, and it might be years and years later, but people remember, you know, people who are nice and it also is nice to be nice, you know, so mm -hmm. and that behooves you in every job. So this is a lesson for everybody. But anyway, 
I got, you know, sort of you know, on talking terms with her. And we talked about different shows we liked and all that stuff. And I said, well, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to leave. I have a leave behind for Chris. And I explained in the advertising business, mm-hmm. you know, you leave behind something at this sort of reinforce your idea or to, you know, further. And, and she says, okay. And so I started ran it by her. And she thought that was kosher. And uh, this is pre-9-11, I understand. Mm. So yeah. so she said, yeah, just bring it by the lot. And I'll give it to you a drive on. And you can drop it off at uh, at our offices. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay. So what I had is um, this this great idea that I had to deliver. I couldn't just you know put it in the mail. Because it was mm-hmm. this 3D thing. So uh, in a box. So, so I went over to Fox, left it with the assistant. Everything was great. So Chris Carter, that presumed day later or whatever, comes and there's a box on his, his desk. And it's about, <laughs> I don't know if you can see my hands here in front of yeah. me, but it's maybe like, you know, I don't know the size of a, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, about that, that tall. And like one uh, cube. yeah, but one by, yeah, one by two or maybe uh, rectangular. And, and he takes the box out of the box. There's an object. It happened to be a pickle jar, like one uh-huh. of those resealable things. But you know, if you look at the top, the, the lid would be about that big around. About this. You yeah. Know. Anyway, but the, the the pickle jar is covered with a paper bag, and rather than describe it visually, I, I for one of my my classes I taught, I drew this actually out, and so it looked. And I don't know if you can see this. Let me bring it up under the camera. Can you read that at all? Yeah. My God, Balder, it's trying okay. to communicate. <laughs> okay, so it's just a brown paper bag written yeah. in the X-Files font. And it's like, my God, yeah, and you just said, my God, Mulder, it said, it's trying to communicate. And it's like, well, okay, hopefully with curiosity peaked, he pulls the paper bag up, off to it in this pickle jar. Inside this pickle jar, I had... Sculpted from an auto sponge, you know, like the, the, the uh, can, you know, car, yeah. those big rectangular sponges. I sculpted with scissors and an exacto knife, an alien embryo, had little ping pong ball eyes, black of course, and it held a little sign. This alien embryo, and it said Jeff Laming is ready to pitch ideas, and it had my phone number. Uh-huh. Put it in the jar, but what was great, and this was unanticipated, I filled the uh-huh. jar with water, so the sponge. Alien embryo, which is you know, eh, also went vroom, and filled the uh-huh. whole jar, and it looked so cool. If I do say my, so myself, <laughs> there's like orange, there's an orange sponge, and everything. Uh-huh. So I was like, okay, so th- so he opens it up, says he's trying to communicate. Jeff Lemming is ready to pitch ideas, and so I was very proud of that. I dropped it off, called my agent, same agent, and uh-huh. he's like, um, it was it? Yeah, it was the same agent. It was a TV agent at that time. Yeah. Uh, different guy than the initial, and, and I said, "This is I left it behind. These can be very effective if, if, if uh, received properly." And uh, my agent's like, "You know, Chris Carter doesn't even return executive phone calls. I mean, wow. it's like so in other words, don't get excited. I'm like, yeah, I, no, no, I, I won't. But revel in this moment with me, agent. <laughs> I mean, come on. The old-fashioned chutzpah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. we can do it." Uh, anyway, yeah. like four days later, Chris Carter's office calls. Uh, Chris was quite impressed with what you dropped off. Um, can you come in and pitch ideas? And I'm like, oh, yes, you sure? I just I can. <laughs> and I hung up and turned to my wife and go, I've got to come up with ideas. I mean, yeah. I'd been under the impression that 
I would be, this would happen maybe a month down the road or longer. Yeah. And, uh, and I went, um, I, I came up with a bunch of ideas. It was nice because, you know, I, it, they didn't have to be big ideas. They had to be more concepts. And, and the series, if you've ever seen it, uh, it's all about the teaser. So you come up with mm -hmm. a killer teaser and then, and then the episodes about this and that. And so I came up with a bunch, went in and mm -hmm. I sat down in his office. It was a pleasure to meet him. And, you know, uh, the pitches went well. Uh, a lot of pitches, you, this is just warning to anybody and any, everyone who does pitches. This is across the board. Mm -hmm. A lot of your pitches, you're like, are they hearing what I'm saying? They, they'll <laughs> people look at you, you know, sort of stare. Yeah. Or they'll go, hmm, hmm. And they glance yeah. over their phone. Or, you know, I mean, anyway, Chris was a pleasure to pitch. He would lean forward and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. uh, like he was like, he couldn't wait to hear the next thing. And it, that was such a pleasure. But what did my heart good is there in the center of his desk as I'm pitching to him was this thing I'd sent him facing oh, really? to whoever is sitting across from his desk. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, he was he was impressed enough with, with it. And he was, you, were, you have a good writing you know, credentials. You're a sculptor as well. I'm like, well, I explained the advertising background and stuff. But that was the one and only time where it really, really behooved me mm. getting a job. By yeah. just applying what makes me different without being ostentatious or obnoxious, mm. you know, yeah. to O words, uh, you know, in, in trying to separate myself, you know, from uh, every other writer who was, you know, sitting across that desk from him, you know. Mm. But they said, um, I would like you to be on staff for season three. Wow. And then I had to talk to, it wasn't on the phone, we were in the offices. It was a weird science. I talked to Alan Cross and, and Tom Speziali, and I explained the whole thing and how much fun I'd worked with them. And they said, mm -hmm. this is a fantastic opportunity. You wow. Definitely, I mean, and, and they let me go. You know, They let me do like one or, more, or two more episodes of Weird Science. Because uh, at that point, you know, they, 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 they were doing really well, and they were sort of coming to the end of the series. Mm -hmm. And it was it was it was there with their blessing that I that I went off to X Files. Wow. And that season three. And how long so you were on X Files? I was there only for one year. Mm -hmm. And uh it was not because I didn't turn out some really good episodes. We had a good large writing staff. And in fact mm -hmm. that was the year that Vince Gilligan left Virginia from his featured writing career to join the staff and so did wow. some really, really great staff members. And my episodes turned out well. But it was the year my wife and I finally had a kid. And mm -hmm. so I, we were, the show, if you're at all familiar with the geography of LA, was at 20th Century Fox. We were in Pasadena. My wife, we were pregnant, so she wasn't working at that point anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a newborn baby. And I just like, I started, I just split my time. And it wasn't working very well with X Files. And so ultimately, uh, it, uh, I just, as great a job as it was and as, as well as I was doing there, I just, I, I sort of had to make a choice because this group was very much a, you know, work late into the night, you know, to have mm. some scotch, you know, maybe smoke some cigars. And I was just like, I, I first, <laughs> I didn't drink scotch and I didn't smoke cigars, but, but I mean, I'm happy to be part of the team and want to be part of the team. But I just, I was a brand new dad and, and that was the mm. most important thing right then. And so it was. It was a. It was a bit of a drag, but um, but uh, you know, it, it was. It was such a notch in my uh, in 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 my 
career belt at that point that, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't regret it for one instant, but I was only there for only one year. But I worked with such luminaries, luminaries, I mean, I apologize if I've used that word already, but uh, it was Vince Gilligan, certainly, that guy, mm. brilliant guy, and so amazingly humble and so talented. And Darren Morgan, who uh, actually won an Emmy Award that year for wow. that season uh, on The X-Files, uh, an episode called uh, starring uh, Peter Boyle mm. and uh, for best, uh, best Emmy for Best Writing. At that point, you, you had a pretty decent resume. Um, yeah. I mean, Northern Exposure, Weird Science, and X-Files, um, all pretty well-known series in three very different genres. Yes. Um, and so uh, tell me about sort of armed with that. The next few years, you, you did uh, a little bit of Lois and Clark, Rescue 77, NCIS, Touching Evil. But tell me about that sort of time. Well, um it was well after after uh, after X Files, I went right to Lois and Clark because I was represented by uh, at that time uh, ICM agency, and what I didn't realize is that what they would do is they would package because I was again I here here's the thing Gray it's kind of funny I for the for the first half of my career was always of the mind that we're all together to put on the best TV show possible. It's going to be the coolest and the greatest business. This this isn't really a business, is it? It's all about creating great content. And, of course, it's a business. And and so all of a sudden I'm at Lois and Clark. And, again, I I worked with uh, Tim Minear, who's a fantastic, fantastic Mm. writer, really wonderful guy, but a brilliant writer. And so I... Hooked up with him as just a fellow staff writer in Lois and Clark, but I never would have met him had it not been the fact that we were all ICM clients, you know. Mm. And so they said, "Okay, we can get one more ICM client. He's free from X Files, uh, so we'll put him on there." And it was kind of it was as much as I like superhero shows and everything. It was sort of long in the tooth at that point, mm. relatively speaking. And so I was sort of the new guy there, and they're like, "Well, we they they've just got engaged, Lois and Clark." And we're going to be around for a good long time. And in fact, <laughs> ABC like cut their yeah. order mid-season, and that was the final season. So then, wow. uh, so you know, we ended up starting there, and then uh, and then you know went our separate ways. So that that's how I ended up on that show because I wasn't I wasn't I just hadn't watched the show. But mm. uh, for the most part, shows I pursued and shows I stuck with were shows that I watched. And we yeah. want to watch, and uh, and that was uh, that's always a kind of a good rule if you can afford to do that. I mean, that's that's sort of like you know, good 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 if you can do that. But mm-hmm. I mean, most of the people will work just to work, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, you know, so then I was done with that, and then it was um, then it was a matter of uh, time where it's like I'm not sure what nothing was happening, and it was sort of this this dearth of work. Until Rescue 77 came along. And uh, mm-hmm. again, that was something that my agents, I think, got me. And uh, and it was a firefighter show for uh, it was not um, it was not CW then. It was the WB, mm-hmm. but it shot in Los Angeles. And uh, it was created by the guy who created uh, Backdraft. Uh, he's a mm-hmm. feature writer. And uh, he was a great guy. Greg Wyden never had done television before. So you're in there sort of going, OK, well usually take about like a week or maybe two weeks to write a script 
what? What? Two weeks? <laughs> I mean, he's like, no, no, because he was used to writing features where you take a month or whatever. I was like, no, no, no. Yeah. And I, I always felt kind of weird because I'm, he's the guy who created the show, ran the show. But I was the guy going like, I mean, there was a showrunner. He had plenty of, uh, Kevin Arkadai was running this show. But I mean, I was sort of with Kevin going, no, no, no. We have a schedule to stick to in television. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so Greg's like the future the feature guy's like, you know, really? Well, I guess. Wow. Okay. So we served purposes there. Uh, you know, that I had not served uh, on other shows. But we shot in L.A. at an abandoned mm-hmm. fire station in Glendale. We had fire trucks in there. It was so cool. My kid at that mm-hmm. point was a couple of years older and loved firefighters. So I had the yeah. best job in the world. I took him to the set. Anyway, so it was that was great, but yeah. again, you know, CW, uh, not CW, um, WB, WB, and it didn't, didn't that didn't last long because you know, <clears throat> it, for whatever reasons, I don't know why, and then, uh, and then, uh, so these things all sort of it wasn't uh, my failures there as much as that was a sort of a lesson in stuff doesn't last, stuff doesn't stick to mm. the wall like spaghetti necessarily, um, and. Uh, what was interesting, though, and, and this is a good time to interject here, is each one had a very different writer's room in that uh, Andy and Diane, Northern Exposure, I would meet with them and I would pitch ideas just to them. Mm-hmm. And then they would say, we like this, we don't like that, we like this, we don't like that. And so then I'd be sent off to my office. And then we'd have lunch together and we'd sort of talk about stuff. But then everyone would go off to their respective offices. Hmm. Uh, uh, we're science sitcom room. A lot of the guys were sitcom writers, and so it was very much a sitcom room where you would sit in the room and you pitch out an idea. And then when someone had an idea, they'd say be assigned it, or they'd say I'll do this one. And that person would drop out of the room. Well, the, the machine, the room would keep going with coming up, and it was lots of lots of you know who can top each other's jokes and stuff like that. Mm. And that was really fun. Very different, ultimately completely different than other shows, but that was a sitcom room. And, uh, but good, good to arm myself with that in case I ended up in something like that later. And in fact, I did years later with Tom Speziali, uh, on Reaper because he, uh, co-ran mm. that show many years later, which also segues to you get work from people you work with. If it's a good experience, mm. uh, from that point, there was no writer's room in X-Files. We had our own respective mm. offices. Wow. Um, what you would do is you would come up with your idea on a bulletin board with cards. And then when you wanted to pitch it, you pitched to Chris exclusively. Chris Carter would be your audience. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Chris's office was about a block from the writer's offices we were in. So oh, wow. you, you carry, uh, I mean, in my arms, uh, probably off camera at this point, you uh-huh. uh bulletin boards with cards tacked on with you know with tacks and you were hoping against hope that it wasn't raining or windy because yeah. you had to go a block outside set up in chris's office and pitch to him the writers all were accessible to each other and so you'd run ideas past them individually mm-hmm. or as a group but there was no room it was mm-hmm. chris was sort of the 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 here and all opinion on this and so he'd give you notes and stuff like that Mm-hmm. Which was uh, which was good. I think that helped the show stick with his, his sort of vision, his you know, mm-hmm. univision of the series that I think made it succeed succeed so well. And then and then uh, again, again uh, Lewis and Clark. There was more of a writers' room. 
Uh, there was a total writer's room because we we're educating the, the guy running the show as much as anything on uh, Rescue 77. Well, let's let's skip ahead a little bit and talk about um, you had to be talked into writing for Battlestar Galactica. Tell me about that story. This, this the slight preface to this is I got a job and this is the one point where I took a job of the show I didn't, didn't watch and wouldn't have watched. NCIS was looking for uh, writers and mm-hmm. Don Belisario, who had created JAG, co-created NCIS with a great, fantastic guy who I'm still buddies with. Um, and that was, it was uh, Don McGill. And so I was hired on NCIS. And as much as I love Don, I'm just, I'm not a military TV show kind of guy. And this was gonna be much more in that vein. But I thought, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, I need a job, uh, and uh, and this is network, and network pays well, and mm-hmm. uh, and so it was. It was Belisario was the showrunner, and he didn't know what the show wanted to be. Here we are. I think they're finishing their seventeenth season, so it certainly turned out to be <laughs> wow. phenomenal success. But yeah. in that first year, Don Belisario, the co-creator, we all tried heartily tried to turn that show into something that he just was still trying to get his head around. And one by one, these really good writers all fell by the wayside. I was wow. the last new hire, except for Don McGill, who co-created the show, to be let go. So, I mean, that's how much Don Belisario didn't know the show. So it was just wow. a bad match. I should never have taken it in the first place. But at that time, a guy I had worked with on uh, Keen Eddie, and Keen Eddie got lost in the mix here, but he was a Robert Palm showrunner. He was running a show on USA, uh, which was an, uh, an American adaptation of Touching Evil, uh, a mm-hmm. murder show, a serial color show, starring Jeffrey Donovan. It was fantastic. I, I was done at NCIS. He said, come work on, on Touching Evil. Great time. That's the first time I shot in Canada. He's got mm-hmm. to you know, produce all kinds of episodes. got an enormous amount of production experience, enormous. And... Uh, and then that ended abruptly because there was, and again, oh, it's a business. That's right. Uh, NBC <laughs> Universal was bought by, uh, who, who bought it? Comcast? I can't remember. But it was out with the old, in with the new. And mm-hmm. Touching Evil was old. And it was new uh, to them. and they didn't, So it was canceled. And I'm like, oh, boy, what's going to happen? And at that time, the guy who had been involved with producing Touching Evil, David Icke, Oh, uh, David Icke, yeah, great guy. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, anyway, his office called and said, "Would you like to be uh, considered rebooting Battlestar Galactica?" And I, Gray, am old enough to remember the original Battlestar Galactica. Oh, loved it, loved it. Well, I loved it, but I loved Star Wars more. And I'm like, uh-huh. really? We're gonna redo? I mean, in retrospect, it was very kitschy and cool, and it was perfect for the time. But uh-huh. it's like. Ah, how can you possibly? Why would you do that? So there's got to be something you, you can offer me more. You know, my agents. Do that. And then Ike's office, maybe it was my agents. I don't know who gets the credit, but credit is due. They said, let, let, let me just send you uh, um, uh, the the treatment. The guy who's readapting this, rebooting this, Ron uh-huh. Moore is done. Yeah. I'm like, okay. All right. I mean, just because, you know, I liked Ike and I enjoyed so much working on Touching Evil. And I read I did, read uh, Ron Moore's treatment. I'm like, this is brilliant. This is mm. I couldn't believe how he, of course, he'd done a bunch of stuff prior to that that I was not familiar with. 
So I should have mm-hmm. gone in with my eyes wide open, but I didn't. It was so good and so yeah. smart and so, you know, just rethought out. And to, they took mm-hmm. everything that was good, as you said, from the original series. And there was some really cool shit in there. And they reapplied it and made it logical and made it about people. And it made it all about, if you've noticed, uh, I'm sure the audience, I think it was such an appealing show to such a wide audience because it was, all the women were the smart ones in that. Mm. The men were strong and they were fighters and they had names like Apollo and they retained all that. And they were, you know, admirals and blah, blah. But the smartest ones were all the women and that and they were just as tough as their male counterparts had been in the original version. Anyway, mm. Ron Moore can do no wrong in my opinion so did that right and and oh, so i'm yeah. like i read that i said okay i mean and i'm the first guy to say i would utterly wrong about dragging my feet on this i would love to be involved mm. ron had this biggest staff he had wow. like two, two science guys that were the uber science guys and i can't remember her name now she was a brilliant writer too tony um God, I can't remember her last name. I, I, shame on me. But uh, so she, they had a staff of three plus three. This is prior to the, the tiny staff norm that's, that's more prevalent now. Anyway, so I was brought on to do a freelance. And the freelance mm-hmm. worked out well. They brought me to do, do another freelance. And then I didn't. Then that was it. That, that, is, that season was done. Hmm. Came back for another season. I happened to be on the Universal lot just uh, for meeting Oh, I had lunch meeting with Tom Speziali, who was running Desperate Housewives. And while I was there, I'm like, yeah, I wonder what Ron Moore's up to. So I went mm-hmm. to uh, his office, just dropped in to say hi. Literally, yeah. I mean, just to say hi. So funny, I was going to call you. We'd love you to do a freelance for the second season of uh, of, uh, of Battlestar. And I did my third script for them. And wow. Man, I, it's, I, I'm so proud of being on that show. And mm-hmm. just... And, and just uh, kicking myself for not doing my due diligence to see, you know, what yeah. a great pedigree it had behind it. But I mean, mm-hmm. it was so weird. I never had to be talked into anything, but that that was just my old my old self remembering, you know, a 1980s version of something. Yeah. And so you know, shame on me again. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that was a case study on how to remake something. Wow. No, you're exactly right. I mean, really, mm-hmm. you couldn't have done it. I, uh, everything was done so perfectly. Yeah. And so it was just that third uh, freelance script. Did you do any more work with them? No, no. Uh, then uh, by that point, um, let's see what, uh, what was I? I'm trying to think what was the next. Uh, Reaper was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what happened. Is Reaper mm-hmm. came along, and again that was Tom Speziali. He didn't create the show. That was uh, Michelle Fazekas and uh, Tara Butters. But uh, it was this great, uh, this great uh, premise. That was very mm-hmm. funny. It's on CW. It was an hour long, but Thomas Pizzioli was because uh, they'd worked with him a couple of times prior to that. Mm-hmm. They brought him on to give you know some some credibility because mm-hmm. he was he was he's also very funny, but a great great liaison to the studio and stuff like that. And here was the ultimate lesson mm-hmm. on that. The premise was essentially this guy finds out at age twenty one. When he wakes up one night with his uh, with the devil in his bed, going, "Okay, Sam, we're going to begin a, a lovely friendship," and he finds out his parents sold 
his soul to the devil when he turns 21 so they could have Sam, you know, the son. Wow. And he goes, whoa, wait, wait, wait. He goes, well, you, you, you know, we wanted a child so badly. And it's, so it's sort of, you know, now the devil has to hire him to you know, catch souls, escape from hell. So it's kind mm -hmm. of crazy and, and irreverent and, and had a good cast. And anyway, the problem was this is the other lesson that this is a business, not a, uh, you know, we're going to make the greatest show ever. And, and uh, a woman named Dawn Ostroff was, had been made head of CW Network. Mm -hmm. And she came aboard with this show, Gossip Girl, and mm -hmm. plans to reboot 90210. And because this was going to be the Gossip Girl Network, which mm -hmm. did not at all, in any way, shape, or form, you know, invite Reaper, which is about these completely complete layabout guys who, you know, are irresponsible and much more, you know, uh, very sweet and they're very heartfelt and all that. Mm -hmm. But it was not, there was not a match. And she didn't think the show was funny. She didn't think, and she was right. It didn't fit with the other things that were on the network. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be short-lived just because of that. And that's when there was the writer's strike. And uh, we were like halfway, we finished the first season. No, we were halfway through the first season. And then we were brought back to finish the first season. And I thought, okay, well now we'll see what happens. And then I think Necessity brought, brought it back for a second season. Which was great because uh, the second season got much more into mythology and became much mm -hmm. more serialized. It was serialized to begin with, but uh, the stories were much stronger. We got some you know, really good writers in the second season, and uh, and then it just didn't didn't get picked up for a third season, which was too bad. But yeah. um, uh, you know, the writer strike was was tough on a lot of shows. Um, I remember looking back at the at that that season and. Uh, I think there was only one or two shows from that particular year that ended up surviving. Yeah. Like, like maybe they would make it a half a season longer or a season longer, but then almost every every one was canceled mm -hmm. that uh, that launched around that time. It was. It was a tumultuous time. And, I mean, it was very interesting, too. And that cemented the, the, the business thing is that, you know, it was, it was a hard-fought 100 days. We were on a picket line. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, you know, I've always been a big proponent and supporter of the Writers Guild. Uh, but after that, I really I really was a true you know, believer. And in fact, it just uh, helped me a lot recently. Um, and, and it has in a hundred different ways. So that's my quick plug. To, you know, the Writers Guild, I think, has been very good to me, certainly, but to mm -hmm. many writers. And and, uh, and so that was a very interesting little hiccup in you know this trajectory mm. but a bigger hiccup uh was was coming up about that time i, I will interject because i don't want to forget the tail end of this remember the william macy macy thing that started oh. all of this before i knew yeah. i was even going to los angeles william h macy like me had enjoyed a great ascension in la he, mm. he about that time i think it was uh he and his writing partner uh, had been nominated for an Emmy Award for a TV movie they did called Door to Door. They starred Bill Macy. Anyway, they got the um, they got the nomination or they got the award. Anyway, so he hosted a Writers Guild thing, and I said, "Oh my gosh!" And there's only all the Writers Guild members, and it's held downtown LA in a 51-story uh, high-rise building. And I said, "Kathy, my wife," I said, "We've got to go." 
go to this because it's open to everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, he was going to be there with his wife and, you know, hors d'oeuvres. And he was going to give a little talk and, and like, and I can say, hey, and then recount, you know, way back yeah. when. And of course, I got there. And of course, I was not the only person who wanted to meet Bill Macy or rub shoulders with him or whatever. So we're enjoying a 51, you know, storied lookout over Los Angeles. And I'm looking for a, a way in. And it just wasn't going to happen. I was realistic. Mm-hmm. Everyone was trying to bend his ear. This just wasn't going to happen. Kathy and I go, we go to the elevators. Get in, and it's just us two. The door is closing. I kid you not. A hand stops the elevator, and in comes Bill Macy and his no. wife. And wow. like this, this happens in the movies or in television. Yeah, but, but only in bad movies. It's only in bad television. <laughs> and he steps in, and so I'm like, okay, I got 51 stories. Anyway, yeah. so I recounted our, our this thing, and he listened, and he said, you know, I remember that. And so by the time we got to the main floor. I, I, there was closure to this amazing thing that yeah. had started so inconspicuously and unforeseen. And I'm like, oh, man, that never happens, you know? It's sort of like, you know, I could have stopped. You know, I could have retired at that point. It's like, ah, oh, full circle. So <laughs> that was great. So I was sort of top of the world. And uh, and so rebranded. Um, from that, I went to uh, Fringe. And then um, that was that was pretty interesting in that we had a giant writer's room. Wow. Like way too many cooks. There were two showrunners because they brought Joel Wyman on to sort mm. of take over uh, in, in conjunction with Jeff Pinkner. Because, again, their first season, they were sort of trying to do X-Files. They, they didn't quite know what the show was. They figured it out by the end of the season. Mm-hmm. But, again, Lost was also a, a bad robot show like this was. They brought some, brought, brought some uh, people from that onto the show. And so I didn't. I was only there for one season. I was there, though, and it was a great feather in my cap because of Joel Wyman, who created Keen Eddie mm-hmm. uh, five years before. And so I, I was really pretty tight with Joel. And, uh, and so I was happy to be there because of that. And he was a great guy to work with. But I didn't come back from, from uh, Fringe, and I got a job on Teen Wolf. Okay, so this is mm-hmm. where the bottom sort of fell out. And so uh, Teen Wolf was great. I had a fantastic time working with Jeff Davis. I love werewolves. I love my monsters. Mm-hmm. And we got to sort of create our own mythology. Very and that's tiny another good staff. reboot. Yes, very good. I mean, yeah. Jeff gets all the credit for that. Yeah. But we got some credit, too, because we got to come up with stuff that's like, mm-hmm. what if we, and we would come up with these spiral graves and, and, and stuff, and, and, and he, he uh, had a very small staff, but no, Jeff, again, really nice mm-hmm. guy, great writer, and we got to, you know, put it in high school, and and, and, and it was a different reboot, I mean, as much as I love Michael, uh, uh, Michael, um, I'm sorry, uh, t- Michael movie. J. Fox. Michael J. Fox, yeah. Yeah. You know, and everything, this was, you know, let's pretty make it serious, let's make it, you know, mm-hmm. heartfelt and whatever, and I thought we really, really, that, particularly that first season, where no one was turning mm-hmm. into lizards yet. But uh, but uh, mm-hmm. I knew for a fact, and we all did, there were three writers on it, me and two others. And mm-hmm. then ultimately they were let go, and Jeff pretty much wrote the rest of the episodes. I stayed there for the full season, and I said, I'd very much like to be there because you're guaranteed to be on the staff. We loved, I loved your writing. And I said, but I'm not sure if I can pay you. 
Not sure if you could pay. Well, I did for my my level at my level. Mm. I said, you know what, this has been a fantastic show, and I'd love to see where it goes. So I'd be paid, obviously, but you know, I wouldn't get a promote for my contract or whatever. I said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm negotiable because I really like working with you. He really liked working with me, and uh, and so he, he said, okay, well, you're on board. So we we finished up the season. I was visiting Minneapolis at my brother's house, on his what became the back patio of of, uh, of uh, bad news. So I'm on the back patio and I get a call from Jeff going, actually, we're, we're not having the same writing staff. And so mm-hmm. you're not coming back. I knew for a fact that there were some people he wanted to hire initially before he hired me. So I understood, mm-hmm. but I was still, it's like, oh boy, I'm sort of crushed. And because uh, I thought, well, I was sort of planning having a job in the fall. Suddenly I'm I didn't have a job and it was really, really very, very weird. Mm-hmm. And so I came up, uh, I did a pitch with uh, the Dowdle brothers who were a uh, feature uh, writer, director, writer, producer, uh, producer, director, brother team mm-hmm. from uh, from Minnesota, as a matter of fact. And they had done a, a couple of films. One of them was called uh, Quarantine, this found footage thing. They had a pitch and they'd never done television. So I, I came up with this pitch for Legendary TV and uh, uh, Sci-Fi Network bought it. This is about a year later. Visiting Minnesota on the same back patio. I'm like, I, I found out it was sold. And then that same back patio found out it wasn't sold. And I'm going, well, wait, <laughs> is that legal? Can you do that? Wow. And it's like, oh, so again, huge disappointment. And about that time, I uh, realized I need some sort of plan B because mm-hmm. at this point I've had a fantastic career there's ups and downs, but I've learned so much, and I, I, I could want for nothing else. But if this writing thing continues not to pan out, I need to do something. At that time, it was getting closer. My, my son, my older son, was more closer to college. We were touring mm-hmm. colleges. I've always loved teaching. I had been over the years sporadically when I had time off, teaching at universities. It really, there's a world that appealed to me. And I thought, well, I'd love to teach. And so I talked to a guy, who, a friend of mine, who was, a, in fact, a university professor, or, uh, president. He mm-hmm. said, you need a master's degree if you're going to teach at college level. And so I went back and I got my master's degree. I was so entranced with going back to uh, the process of going back and getting my master's. It was, it was so eye-opening. I had such a good time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this, this is definitely something I can do. Markedly different than everything I'd been doing the prior, prior you know, 20 years or whatever and it'll be a very different lifestyle for my family and all that stuff but I was something that I was welcome and ready to you know, sort of embrace and so I was working on that when a very good friend of mine that I'd worked with on another show and again these are the people I've worked with who just throw you throw you a bone or see an opportunity that mm-hmm. you think good uh had started working on a series called Hannibal mm-hmm. with um, Brian Fuller and this is the the third amazing reboot, as good as as successful as the movie series was. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and so he persuaded Brian to meet with me on uh, Hannibal, and I was hired on Hannibal. So as I was finishing my master's thesis, mm-hmm. uh, which was a play, which was kind of fun, writing a play, yeah. I was working full time on Hannibal. So I was back in the saddle. And uh, thanks entirely to my friend opening the door. 
But it was mm. also, again, a nice little moment of closure because I found out I got the Hannibal job on that very same back patio oh. two times. That wow. once, but twice. Fortune had not smiled. And I found out I got a job and I was back on, in, on at least for one more show. And yeah. so the, the cloud had been lifted. I was, you know, yeah. it was just, it was a very, very, it, I eat I in that patio many times since then and, and, and have nothing but good memories. So uh, Outcast was immediately after Hannibal, followed mm-hmm. by The 100, followed by, uh, uh, by uh, Debris, which was just last yeah. uh, season. And you did three seasons of The 100. Uh, well, yeah, yes, it wasn't just one of each. Outcast was two seasons. It was on Cinemax, mm-hmm. and it was created by uh, based on a series of comics by Robert Kirkman of Walking yep. Dead fame, of course. And yep. then, uh, and then, so when that ended, I got a call from Jason Rothenberg at the Hundred, mm-hmm. who had wanted to hire me mm-hmm. uh, uh, before Outcast, and uh, and I Outcast was being run by my good friend Chris Black who I'd met years before at Weird Science. Mm-hmm. And he said, I want you on the show. And I'd like, ah, okay. So I, I said, I'd let Jason Rothenberg and the 100 down gently. And then worked on, on Outcast. And then when that was done, Jason called and said, would you like to work on the 100 now? And I'm like, <laughs> no, no hurt feelings? Because I mean, a lot of times people go, fine. Yeah. You want to work yeah. with me then? You don't get to work with me now. And I came on and it was a fantastic three years working with amazing mm. men and women yeah. Mostly, largely female staff, which is perfect for the hundred. Again, mm-hmm. super strong female characters. I mean, really, really a wonderful series. Julie, Shauna, Benson were there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Shana, uh, yeah. They're great. I mean, I, I was so impressed with absolutely everyone I worked with in that mm-hmm. show. Um, yeah. And and very much that was all about the writers' room. I mean, mm. we came up with ideas together. We spent every day in the writer's room together. Jason would join us. But that was, that really, I think that series spoke to the strength of a room. Because mm. um, while we had a room on uh, Debris, that was the COVID year. So it was all a yeah. Zoom room. And as much as we got to know each other, we were all strangers. And someone commented, not on that, in that room, but a fellow writer in another Zoom room said, you don't know how, how tall anyone is in a Zoom like, <laughs> Okay, I guess for whatever that's worth, but it is true. But you don't, you don't. It's it's not the intimate sort of. It was very very markedly different. You had no alternative. I mean, it wasn't like mm. they had a choice. But so there really was, I think, uh, interesting to compare the hundred and debris because I mean they were so abutting, but uh, so markedly different. Um, yeah. And you did teach it at USC for one year. Oh no! Yeah, thank you for reminding me. It did a lot of information here because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach college. So during that time down, there was an opportunity at USC. I applied for a job there, like an actual job there. And of course, Los Angeles, there's lots of writers that, you know, uh, they're looking for, I'm sort of done with this. I'll see if USC can hire me. And there are a lot of people already working at USC, associate Mm -hmm. professors who are looking for the next step up. So I didn't get that job, but they said, if you want to ever teach a class, absolutely, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, keep us in mind. Mm-hmm. So I said, keep, in, keep me in mind. And so while I was at, uh, I think it was when I was the, the 100, they contacted me and said, would you like to teach a night class? And I said, absolutely, that'd be great. And irony of ironies, 
mm-hmm. when I was at USC trying to get my foot in the door way back in the 80s, I took the prereq classes. The one class that was closest to what I needed to get in, but I did not get in the program, was a three-hour, one-night-a-week class uh, that was essentially, you know, a night class. And so that's what I ended up teaching most more recently, you know, a few years ago at wow. USC. And it was really cool. That went really well. And so then they uh, they said, these students love you. You're very effective, you know, and which I've learned now is what it's all about is, if, you know, you have to have to pass muster with the students as much as, you know, the faculty and the curriculum and all that. And so I went back and taught a second year. Mm-hmm. And I was very excited. And uh, it was a great experience. It was so, so interesting to share. And it was, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you and just impart what I can condense and quickly here. But here you get these guys for three hours once a week. And you mm-hmm. can impart all kinds of advice and suggestions. And, you know, because they're all looking to embark on their journey. And, yeah. you know, I got a lot to share. A lot of it, you know very different uh, over the 30 years and it's a very different job getting a new job different different ordeal of getting a new job in 2021 22 than it was in mm. 19 1991 and 92 you know let's um just segue here into more of an overview sure. of um of everything we've you've caught us up to the present um <laughs> and in i th- i think i i mean i've talked to a lot of writers in this podcast over the years a lot of them um who've been in for several decades and uh, in your 30 year span, I think it's actually quite remarkable that you had only that one real um, break. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and that was the time that I hear of a lot of writers after sort of about 20 years hitting a break that's like the plane stalling and the plane never recovers. Right. Um, so, so what do you think is it, is the key for you and how you were able to recover and then really the last five, six years have been great. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I had a plan B, uh, and then I pursued that. And I think a lot of times people go, I'm going to have a plan B I'll teach. Uh, and, and it's like, yeah, but I saw that there had to be a, a step that I had to do that was every bit as hard is uh especially at my age i mean it was it was beneficial and then my kids one kid was in high school and one was uh uh about to start college i think it was beneficial for them to see me you know start from scratch and, and like spending all night writing papers and everything like that and so there was there were benefits you know as i said i enjoyed it enormously i wrote a play which i'd never done in my whole life mm-hmm. as, a, as it was necessary so there were all kinds of benefits from it, but I had to get that degree because I thought if I do not work in television again, I was prepared to make that break. Yeah, and that's a good segue to talking about sort of up-and-comers now and mm-hmm. how how it's different than maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. You're plugged in with, with a lot of these people who you know, were, were students at USC maybe three, four years ago. Maybe they're entering the, the workforce now. Um, we've seen... A plethora. There's such a, a wide breadth of shows now, but it's not necessarily um, exponential in terms of every level of work. Um, no, you're we see right. Staffs that are very small, and sometimes they're very uneven. Um, say, for instance, you might have a lot of higher level writers and no baby baby writers, right. or the reverse. 
Um, so tell me about the current landscape and, and how that relates to somebody who is, is at the beginning stages of their career. Well, what I've seen um, uh, largely uh, through the hundred, because a lot of young writers in there, I mean, staff writers and everything that are not like I, I started in the business when I was 30. That's because I worked in advertising for all those years prior. Um, other students at, at that time would come out of, uh, you know, their, their curriculum, wherever they were back in the early 90s. And you would get a staff job in your 20s. I mean, just out of college, you know, you didn't you didn't get have a master's. You didn't have an F, MFA in uh, in uh, screenwriting or anything. You just had a, an English degree or whatever, you know, and that is uh, that's because at that time, you just needed a good writing sample and an agent that could vouch for you and mm -hmm. sort of an agency that could get behind you. Um, in uh, in uh, the hundred, there were a lot of staff writers, but they were not, they were 30 years old because they had gone, gotten their undergraduate degree in English, then had gone on and got a master's in screenwriting. Wow. And then uh, this, and this is of course also accruing student debt and having to work, you know, full time, you know, to pay the student debt, and then from that point, uh, this is the question I got a lot. I mean, when I when I, when I talk to people who are asking about, you know, just how to get into it, just friends, you know, who call and and uh, and also the students that I've taught at USC, uh, they ask about the internship programs and what kind of internship programs did you have? It's like zero, because that <laughs> that wasn't the part of the equation back then. Because mm -hmm. now it seems, and again, using the hundred, uh, like the writer's assistant at uh, the hundred, uh, the last two years, that guy uh, got, you know, after going through, you know, getting his master's, ended up being an assistant at a production company mm -hmm. for a couple of years. And then from there, he went to something else. And so by the time he was 30, he was like, he had, he was one step below a writer's assistant in the writer's room where you get to be a fly on the wall and that's the most most you know coveted and that's the next step uh to getting your a freelance you know mm -hmm. and and whereas i was a staff writer and i got to write three scripts and rewrite a freelance you know this guy got one freelance you know as he was a writer's assistant but this guy also was hugely in debt i had been working for a long time so he knew way more than i did I mean, mm. but it's just, that, that, that also plugs into what you said very early on. By that point, you're kind of jaded. And how could you help mm -hmm. but not be? Because, yeah, I've been working in this business, in this industry, either uh, peripherally or exactly in the business. Mm -hmm. And it's like this new step ladder leads you up to, by the time you start, you know a lot and you sort of, you don't walk in with your eyes wide open and you're like ready to learn, huh? Yeah, really. They've got their own opinions. They've got their own, and and, and rightfully so. It's, it, it, they should, but it's it's um, a lot of your youthful. And this sounds weird, but I guess I'm old, so I can say youthful exuberance and excitement for that is tapped, is squandered, mm -hmm. and so um, that's why I tell the <laughs> my class. I tell them. I said, you know. Go through the internship, try to get an internship that's as close to writing 
mm-hmm. mean, if, if that's all you can get is to work in the mailroom at, uh, you know, William Morris Endeavor, something is better than nothing. But that's not entirely you got if you want to be a writer, stick to close to writing, do things that are close to as close to writing as possible. But try breaking every rule possible because you've you got to go and distinguish yourself because seven years between graduating your, your graduate program saddled with that it, it's too long i mean it's mm. it's uh and again they're realities and i recognize that and you're not living in the 90s anymore or the late 90s or even the early 2000s and so i recognize that but uh but at the same time you know people distinguish themselves uh and uh and so keep doing that as well as following these internships and stuff mm. and and so it, it was it's sort of you know with a heavy heart, I see these people graduating with, with uh, you know, from film schools and stuff. That's why I think such such uh, things as, as your podcast and, and everything like that, and, and, and every frame uh, painting or whatever. I mean, these things you can glean from a lot of different resources help mm. you sort of think outside the box and, and that old well-worn phrase, you know, because it, it has changed a lot. Yeah, and you you had sent in your notes to me, work begets work. Talk about that a little bit. Well, see, uh, that's that two that works on two levels. Uh, to the business, and in fact, I don't know why, but and I like your explanation that a lot of times it was the twenty year mark of in a career. I mean, certainly, well, that guy's been around the block a few times, in with the old, in with the young, and out with the old type of thing. But uh, also. Uh, if you don't work for a little while, people go, oh, that person is not working now. And so you're not as attractive. So that's on the business level. But work also begets work and that you never stop writing. If you like writing, see, here's the thing, Gray, that, that, that separates me. I found this out fairly, fairly early on. A lot of people get into this business to make the TV shows, to be on set and go, okay, and been in the chair. And it's like, oh, thank you for my latte, you know I mean? just to be part of the, you know, and action kind of thing. I adore writing. I get in the Mm. zone when I write. I'd like nothing better than, it's like, okay, Jeff, go home for two weeks and write this script. And it's like, I'm at home. And it's like, uh, uh, so so I I do it because as much for that as to work in the industry, which has its own benefits. Most people, lots of people do not. So they are the ones that tend to, well, I wrote a screenplay a year ago. Oh, there, I wrote mm-hmm. a spec. And and so work, I think, begets work in that it keeps you creatively mm-hmm. putting stuff out. And that isn't necessarily to get you your next job, but to sort of keep your brain sharp and to, to, uh, to keep those muscles flexed, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it works on a, on a macro level, which is to say, you know, stay, keep busy, Take a job, even if you don't want to work on NCIS. Just mm-hmm. be seen that you're in employed, but yeah. also, you know, to just write at home. I mean, write the stuff you want to write, uh, which is more and more. And this is a good thing. People love to read original specs now, and, mm-hmm. and that sort of, you know, which really helps you allow it to be you, which I uh, made an allusion to earlier, and not just okay. Here's my Madman spec, you know. Like, okay, this is the 37th one of these I've read type of thing. Mm-hmm. You're really reading something that reflects the writer. So that's sort of a, a product, uh, a, a writing product of yours that serves both 
macro and the micro, the personal and the, mm. and the, and the business. How, how do egos play in? And, and you've seen a lot of people in the various writing staffs, and you've seen how their careers have gone beside you. Um, how, how important it is to control your ego? Everyone in this business has an ego. You sort of have to have an ego to believe that you're going to be able to make it in this business. It helps them mm -hmm. to turn out a good product and be proud of that product. Ultimately, the proof is in the pudding that other people will read that and go, this is good. Because it's easy enough for you to go, I thought it was good. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but for someone else will be your judge ultimately on that. But you need the ego to keep going because, I mean, uh, so you need it's just an interesting bag. Once you're in a room, it's the guy who like sort of drives you crazy on the first mm -hmm. day of the writer's room where you're going, I'm going to hate this guy or this woman. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you're woefully incorrect and they turn out to be really funny. And, and so it was like first day jitters for them or whatever. But often that's not the case. And mm -hmm. uh, and like uh, I mentioned, uh, the fringe room was enormous and and there's no reason to you know, cite any names or anything. But the first day I was there, I didn't know anyone in the writer's room except Joel Wyman. And uh, and so you sort of sizing everybody out up and, and and but then Joel Wyman and Jeff Pinker, a stranger, they say, OK, well, we got to go you know, put out some fires or whatever. So we're left with all these writers and you're trying to figure out who's in charge here. <laughs> and the one guy who clearly took over the room was clearly not in charge. But it's like, okay, so then you're like, okay, he's in charge. And then you find out it's not. And you go, this guy just has an enormous ego. And, he's, and, 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 uh, and I don't know that I was the only one who was sort of uh, put out by him. And, uh, mm -hmm. and then, then so everything is from that point is sort of tainted. And uh, again, I, I mentioned this. You just, I mean, just be nice to everyone. But some people that come in with a big ego, and that's going to certainly, I think, be picked up on by your boss. A lot of times, your bosses have big egos, but they've sort of earned it, and uh, and uh, and it's their baby. And, and you got you as a writer and an understaffed person, you know, we have to recognize that and mm -hmm. and, and respect that. And so, because you're not peers, and so there's this hierarchy that you have to learn, but. But, you know, so the only ego you keep in check is your own. And if you're like super egotistically, you're not going to get very far in this business. So, like I said, most everyone I worked with uh, either uh, ultimately fail by the time you check in on them next or mm -hmm. they don't get very far at all. Because this is largely a bigger room, a small room, even though they're getting smaller, uh, the, 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 back to the farm. Wheat is cut from the chaff and in uh, I think the most capable and the people who are the easiest and, and, and most valuable to work with are the ones that remain. Mm. But you have to get there and, and keeping your ego, if you have one, in check or just be aware of it is very, very important. Yeah. What I really wanted to end up with is um, if you were to speak to a high school student. Right All right, now, right. And, and, and in other words, somebody who has an absolutely, completely blank canvas ahead of them but they want to be a tv writer what mm -hmm. advice would you give them what do you think is the best way to aim themselves um mm -hmm. to a tv writing career right now in 2021 it's all about the writing it's all about coming up with stories and telling stories that you want to hear and that you want to you know 
help resolve and, and see if you can do that, because it's not so easy. Get, get off your device, you know, come on. Television is different than it was five years ago, as you pointed out. Certainly different than it was 10 years prior to that and in 10 years before that. Uh, it, it's changing in such a way that, that people, it's sort of hard to predict. But what's still at the core of all this is telling good stories. I mean, just finished watching Squid Game. And mm -hmm. it's like, <clears throat> that could easily have been nothing but the first episode, if you're not familiar with this, the first episode times nine episodes. And it wasn't. It was so much about so much more that spoke of uh, a knowledge of society, of cultural societies, of all these things. It blows you, it blows you away that you, you begin with a hook. Every show does, it always has. But it isn't just that X-Files hook from 1992. It isn't like, it, it says something. And it is it, because you can sell, tell serialized storytelling, you can tell a larger story than it was in a Matlock episode where it's like beginning, middle and end was, we caught the killer red-handed and he's guilty, your honor. Okay, next episode, you know. It's, it, so in that respect, those are the, that's a result, I think, of the writer and writers and group of writers having a really, I think, a broad education, be aware of the world around them, and not just what can I do to become a successful TV writer. Mm. Very cool. And and you mentioned a couple of times about being saddled with debt. Do you think it's a mistake to get an MFA? You know, yes and no. Um, you get to you get to rub shoulders with. Um, you get to rub it in it with MFA program, and and, and every one I've talked to a bunch of different people actually in the recent months, uh, at different varying levels. Some are at EOC, one is at um, at uh, Loyola Marymount here in LA. Another is at the uh, LA Film School, which is more of a you learn all the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. One of the things that being screenwriting, and uh, they all uh, they all have their merit and uh, and. Uh, and so bottom line in all of those is that you rub shoulders and, 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 and deal with people who are like-minded and will be an asset past that. Hmm. But I mean, some people have parents that can pay for this stuff. Other people, it's like, I don't know, you might, I don't know. See, that's such, that was not a concern for me. And I wonder, with the example of our writer's assistant, if that was money well spent, Considering how much it's going to take, it's so much. But oh, if you get a good job, then you're out of the debt. Like, oh, maybe. But so it's a very hard question to answer, and I'm not mm -hmm. sure that. Uh, I mean, teaching at USC, the answer is of course you want to get the education. Don't watch, you know, things you can see on YouTube and listen to podcasts, you know. But those things, I think, are every bit invaluable, as invaluable as. You know, the, the education that you pay for, unless it's mm. not, you know, going to break your bank, because that has become such a consideration now, too. So that, that's a very hard question to answer, and I'm not sure that I answered that really well at all. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I think it just speaks to the fact that there's not, there's mm. not one preordained path into the industry for every person. There's, there's so many different ways that a person could come in yeah i mean that that's a beautiful way to put it and there's different learning styles yeah there's different learning styles some are self-taught 
um, and some are not. It's different for everyone. And I was fortunate enough to uh, have opportunities and uh, certainly you know, for my wife, but from the, by the time I entered the business, all those things that people can't take advantage of necessarily, if at all, or timing in, at this time in the business's history, you know, mm-hmm. are not affording them, you know. But um, that's why I guess I come back to stay true to your, you know, your passions. And you will say, I'm going to make it, and you will make it. I mean, but you have to sort of believe in yourself, and, and then that will make it that much easier to overcome any financial or whatever considerations that you're going to encounter. Hmm. Well, you know what? To, I think that there's been some really, really helpful lessons today. Um, I think thinking about your path through the industry, some, some things that are very clear. Number one, write, 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 write. Keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. Absolutely. Um, keep learning. And number two, get to L.A. as soon as you can. Yeah. Um, and don't take no for an answer. Be aggressive. Um, and, and to your story about I know there's this prevailing wisdom that you should never write uh, a script for uh, a spec script for the show that you're you want to to be writing on and yet at the same time every exception that I've heard as I interview people has always been successful so yeah. I guess there are times you can break the rules that's yes that's a, yeah that's a great way to sum, sum up everything I'm saying yeah very cool and be nice to people because they could your could be your boss five or ten years from now right and just it's also nice to be nice to people. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Well, we'll right. wrap things up here. Um, you're a Jay Vlaming writer on Twitter. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's my handle. I, I put a lot of drawings and things that have nothing to do with television. But a lot of stuff does have to do with my TV career and, and yeah. pass on TV. Very cool. Well, uh, I can't wait to hear about your upcoming projects. And thanks so much for all the wisdom um, that you've shared today. Um, best of luck to you. All right, thanks. The pleasure's been mine, Greg. AVGearGuide.com, a member of the Association of Moving Image Archivists, specializes in film and video restoration. We use state-of-the-art technology to bring new life to vintage material, like the Lost Betty White series Pet Set, which we recently restored for its 50th anniversary return to air. We can apply the same technology to your documentary, film and video archive, and your family videos and photos. Mention the name of the TV Writer Podcast and get 10% off your order. And if you want to make some money, we also give cash for referrals. Visit avgearguide.com for details. Drivingfootage.com provides 4K, 9-angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig, is available for custom shoots and second-unit photography. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. Make sure to subscribe on all of the places you can find this podcast, Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, the tvwriterpodcast.com site, or also at scriptmag.com, and now also on Pandora. And if you're on Instagram, please follow at TV Writer Podcast. Please do follow me on Twitter at Gray Jones is my handle.
If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do it for as little as 25 cents per episode. You can find out how you can become a patron of the podcast or a sponsor of the podcast at tvwriterpodcast.com slash support.